Well, good morning, soldier, and peace be with you. It's good to see everybody. My name's Jonah. Um, I'm scrambling right now because I lost my iPad with my sermon on it somewhere. But don't worry, we have a hard copy. We'll figure it out. See what happens. Uh, thanks for coming. This is an exciting day, not, not the least of which is we had no fights break out for the third year in a row up uh, with the kids' choir. I don't know if y'all saw one of the kids was hanging onto this for comfort, and I just had visions of some poor little girl getting knocked out because where it would have fallen, there was like four girls right here, not because they're more prone to get knocked out. Uh, there's a, a lot happening in the next week, and I just encourage you guys to uh, read the bulletin uh, before you go home or while you're at home fighting off a nap or something, uh, the least of which is not Christmas Eve next Sunday, right? So this is one of those weird times in the year where Christmas Eve hits on a Sunday, and uh, it's been in the bulletin for a couple of months, but just so you know, we've got a service at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. Those are different services. So the 11 p.m. is going to be more like our traditional Christmas Eve service where we'll do the candles and all that kind of stuff, and 11 a.m. will be a more Christmassy, but just a Sunday morning. And uh, Pastor Lachlan will be doing his uh, kids' church experience, if you remember that from last year. That was a baby crying. I thought it was someone getting excited. Uh, so come on up. It should be a lot of fun. Um, the big excitement for today is we have the privilege of sending out one of our families. Um, it's a little bit emotional, but we'll see. I don't have a pulpit either. This, everyone's just trying to make it complicated on me today. So I promise I'm only going to cry a little bit, I think. Um, Gordy Brown and his wife, Alexis, their daughters, Michael and Avery, uh, their son and daughter, the children, I meant to say, have uh, been at Sojourn for a long time. And uh, Gordy served us through preaching. Gordy and Alexis have led community groups. They've helped build our uh, adoption ministry that we've got going now uh, for support, uh, resourcing, even just fellowship in some of uh, life's most challenging and often overlooked kinds of situations. And uh, it was, it was kind of wild. Gordy came up to me during the Acts sermon maybe a year ago, uh, maybe, I don't know, a year and a half ago, something like that, and said, man, we feel like God spoke to us in, in the service, uh, which is terrifying as a, a preacher. It's encouraging and terrifying. If you've ever done it, you know what I mean. And they said, we think that God's calling us to go back home to Idaho. And uh, if, you, if you know where Gordy's from, uh, this, it's a small town in Idaho that has this really difficult mixture of uh, faith. There's a huge Mormon population, and through about a year worth of praying and discussing, uh, the elders and the Browns have just kind of landed real clearly on this is what the Lord has in store for them. So, uh, Gordy and Alexis, come on up here. You want to go all the way up on stage? Come on, all, all the way up so everyone can see you. Um, So they've, in essence, turned their lives upside down uh, to, to make this happen. Uh, in, the, in the span of a, a couple of months, uh, Gordy got a great job opportunity over in Idaho, and then there's uh, this, this little evangelical presence, this one evangelical church in their town that's asked Gordy to come help shepherd them. And so uh, Gordy will be serving as 
um, a shepherd, as a pastor, and just real open-handedly see what, what does the Lord have for us in this. And uh, one of the things that, that we want to make clear to all of us and to you guys is to be sent means that you have a home, right? You, you have to have a home if you're going to be sent from somewhere. And so whatever comes, you better stop it right now. I'm on a roll and you're, getting all, you're not supposed to get emotional yet. Um, is that we want to say to you guys, we are your home, and we, we will always be your home. There will always be a place for you guys here. And part of what being a home for someone means that we have your back. Uh, we're going to pray for you. We, we want to support you. Um, I don't know if you'll need help with money or not because you have a, a real job over there, but we'll do that if we need to, <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, if, if you guys are interested, uh, part of what being saying we're in this with you isn't, isn't just saying, hey, way to go. It's saying, we'll, we'll give you our people. We'll give you our time. We'll give you our support. And uh, we are, there's already one couple that's going with you. And so if you're like, man, I don't know, something's cooking in me right now. Or I know Gordy and Alexis, and they're amazing. If you want to go with them, go with them and uh, come talk to us. If, if you want to be part of their prayer team or their support team, uh, their care team. Whenever we send out missionaries, we have a group of people that support them and care for them. Uh, if you're interested in hearing more, there, there'll be a reception after the 11 o'clock service down in the church hall where you can come and talk to them more. Uh, but we believe in these guys wholeheartedly. It's been a year of praying and, and discerning, and we thank God for who you are and for what you're doing. And so there's a couple formalities that we're going to do here before uh, we do the praying and crying and stuff. The first is, here's your fancy certificate of ordination, which we're about to take care of. So now you can marry and bury. Way to go, buddy. Um, and also, in my opinion, this isn't in the Bible, but in my opinion, every preacher needs a fancy preaching Bible. So preach the word, Gordy. We, we thank God for you. Um, and your wife and I spend a couple of months debating color, okay? I advocated purple and blue, and she said that wasn't for you. So... So now to the actual ordination to make that piece of paper legit. Um, we have some questions for you, and uh, the first, hopefully, is pretty simple. Um, that's not it. There it is. What is your sacred confession of faith? Jesus is the Lord. Amen. Now, uh, we charge you with the following and ask that you'd respond by saying, I do, or we do. Ascent ones, we charge you to go with boldness and authority this means prioritizing the health of your soul so that you may serve rooted in the presence of Christ. Do you commit to seek the Lord as you go and to seek to live godly lives wherever you are? We charge you to trust God and rest in his provision for you. Do you believe that you've been called by God into this ministry as sent ones? We charge you to hold fast to the truth, beauty, and goodness of the gospel. Do you believe that the love of God, revealed in the word of God, announced in the gospel of God, are our world's only hope in life and in death? Finally, we charge you to ground yourselves in Christian community. Do you commit to pursue relationships with your brothers and sisters and not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing? Amen. Well, if you're a member of Sojourn, or if you're someone here out of an expression of commitment and love for the Browns, uh, I ask you to please stand with us now. Hopefully we got one more. There we go. Here we go, church. Will you commit to supporting them with prayer, friendship, and resources 
as they step out on their journeys? And if so, say, we do. We do. Amen. Well, church, uh, I invite you to extend your hand in just a moment with me. Um, if you know or love the Browns or if you're one of our pastors, please come forward as we lay hands on them and entrust them into the Lord. Father, we thank you for Gordy and Alexis, and we've, we thank you, God, that um, we've had the privilege of being your church together, and I thank you, God, that as good as what they've experienced here has been for them, that they love you more, and uh, they trust you more. And so I pray, Father, that um, you would bless them with a deep, tangible awareness of how much you love them, of the great pleasure and delight you take in them, uh, so that they could rest and be rooted in the, the love and the presence of Christ. Um, Father, we pray that you would fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit in new ways, in fresh ways, so that they could serve and love with boldness and authority that comes from Christ. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would do more than we could ask or imagine through them. Uh, you know the challenges that are in front of them. And so in your mercy, God, uh, we pray that you would provide for them and help them serve and live from a, a deep awareness that they have everything they need. Uh, we thank you, God, for the gift that they've been to us, and I pray that you would help them uh, to feel and not forget how loved they are here. Uh, be with Michael and Avery, and I pray that they would come to see how blessed they are to have parents with such rich faith, and uh, we ask that you would uh, save them and continue revealing yourself to them, and you would use this family for your glory, for the good of that town, um, so that many would come to know you and that many would be presented mature in Christ on that day when you return. Uh, we love you, Father, and we're grateful for the Browns. Uh, bless them and keep them. Make your face shine upon them. And in your mercy, God, hear our prayers. We love you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Yeah. Can I give you a hug or something? That's okay. Okay. <laughs> I know it's hard to uh, communicate the depth of a story or the, the hand of God uh, in just a couple of minutes like that, um, but this, this has been, I would say, 18 months, two years of stewing and praying and thinking that's brought the Browns to this place of uh, trusting and following the Lord, and uh, it's happened in strange ways and in beautiful ways, and it's, it's honestly, it's a privilege that we've been able to walk through this with you, and uh, we thank God um, we thank God that you're going. We'll miss you terribly. It's a huge loss for us, uh, but we're trusting that it's a gain for Christ's kingdom. So, um, yeah. All right. Uh, well, we've been, the last few weeks, been doing kind of a, a deep dive through uh, the family tree of Jesus. Uh, for me, there, it's uh, rekindled a love for the scriptures, seeing uh, the depths in these genealogies that, again, so many of us are, are kind of quick to skip over. And uh, we, we've seen that in this family tree of Jesus uh, that we get great insight into who God is and what he's up to. A couple weeks ago, we, we saw that God loves the outsider, and in Christ, no one is edited out of God's story uh, based on their shame, based on their disgrace or their mistakes. Last week, um, we got great insight into how the family tree of Jesus shows us who we are and where we're going, um, that, that we are the outsiders and that the love of God is recreating us. 
And, and today we get, we get this amazing story that kind of encapsulates both of these and, uh, and I think presses into how will God do this? How are we recreated by love? And we're talking about the story of Ruth, which I wish we could slow down and do four or five weeks on Ruth for a lot of reasons. This is a whole book. This isn't just a few verses of a story. And it's one of, uh, it's a real gift in the Bible because it's written from a distinctly female perspective. Uh, the, the women are the main characters. We get the thoughts of women. We get the motivations of women. And uh, it's, it, it just provides such beautiful clarity into what, what does the Bible think of women. And I wish we could spend a lot more time talking about that. If, if those are questions that stir you, uh, I would encourage you to spend some time in the book of Ruth. Uh, and, and what we're going to see is basically God's plan for changing us. And it's a beautiful appetizer for Christmas. And at its core, what, what Ruth shows us is that God rescues us and he transforms us through the power of sacrificial love. Um, the, the power of sacrificial love. And, and like the other women we've looked at in this story, uh, the book of Ruth and this woman of Ruth in particular, uh, her story is just shrouded in tragedy. Uh, it begins on a, on a bit of a sour note. And in particular, the, the pain, the tragedy of this other woman in the story named Naomi. Now, the names were a lot bigger deal in this culture back then than they are now. And uh, they, they carried a lot of meaning. The, the name Naomi means pleasant or sweet. And uh, after spending several years away from home, uh, she comes back home and all of her friends kind of give her you know, the, the squinty look and say, is that Naomi? Could, could Naomi really be home? And we get a great summary of Naomi's mindset and where she's at with how she responds to these women saying, could that really be Naomi? So look at what she says. She says, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Now, this is just a side note here, okay? This uh, this is not part of the sermon, so just tuck it in your back pocket and think about it later. In our culture, we have this tendency to say good things come from God and bad things come from the devil. And the, the Bible holds this incredible tension together of saying no evil or unrighteousness comes from God, and yet over and over and over you see people saying things like this. Like even the bad stuff in my life is somehow held in the plans of God. It's somehow held in, in the sovereignty and the goodness and the beauty of God. The book of Job, right? Case study on suffering. Job never says, the devil did this to me, right? And, and that's a tension that will take a lifetime to resolve. But, but you can see the honesty and, and the heartache here from Naomi. And this, this name Mara, it means bitter. She, she's looking at her friends and saying, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter, because when you saw me last, life was full, life was rich, life was good, and now I'm empty and I am bitter. So why all this pain? What's happened to Naomi? Uh, so first, where we are right here is in a really difficult time in history, particularly the history of the people of God. It, it opens up by telling us a, a little bit about this time. It says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel... A severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife, that's Naomi, and the two sons with him. So a lot happening here. The days of Judges. Uh, the days of Judges in the history of God, this is the Wild West, okay? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's a violent, wicked, evil time. It's, it's filled with sin and, and all kinds of issues. 
Next, he says there's a famine. Like, there's just no food. They can't eat. So they have to go somewhere new for survival, which for them would have meant selling their home, selling everything they owned and going to a foreign country. And then it says Moab, right? Now, when you read Moab, I've been desperate to find a Star Wars reference for today because a movie came out this week. When you read Moab in the Old Testament, you got to hear the Darth Vader music playing. You know that when he comes out and bum, 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 bum. You know what I'm saying? Right? Somebody? It's called the Imperial March. Like, whenever you hear Moab in the Bible, like, nothing good comes from Moab and nothing good happens in Moab. Uh, They are bitter enemies of Israel. Uh, They're a wicked people. They worship the false god, Chemosh. And so they're godless, wicked, violent people that are always fighting with Israel. So we're in the time of judges, which is nasty enough. And then there's a famine, so we're desperately poor. And now we have to go live at Darth Vader's house. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a terrible situation. They're going to go live as hungry refugees in a foreign, godless land. So that's part of what makes this time so difficult for Naomi. Second, there's a, there's a complicated family situation going on. They have two sons, uh, Naomi and Elimelech. They have two sons named Malon and, and Kilion. And their names mean sickly and frail, which would kind of like being like, here, my boys, influenza and nausea, right? Like, and it's not necessarily a statement about the quality of these two men as it is a statement about the difficulty of the times. Again, names meant a lot to them. And so that their names express how hard life was. And these boys grow up in Moab, like the, They grow up in foreign enemy territory, and what's worse, they marry Moabite women, uh, Ruth and Orpah. (laughs) There's lots of jokes I want to tell there, but Ruth and Orpah. Uh, So this would have been an interracial marriage. The the Moabites would have been dark-skinned, and the Israelites would have looked Middle Eastern. And they didn't handle interracial marriages all that much better than most of us do. So you got the, the interracial part, and then you got the Moabite part which I think is safe to say that for mom and dad, this is not how they planned on life going for their children. So there's a hard time in history, there's a complicated family, and then there's incredible loss. Then Elimelech died, and about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two, husband, or two sons or her husband. Her husband dies, both of her sons die, and she's left with her two foreign daughter-in-laws in in this foreign land. And even more than that, um, it's it's really tough to bridge some of these cultural gaps for us, but in essence, you got to look at children in ancient Israel like a social security program. Uh, By her children dying and her husband dying, there's no hope for a future with Naomi. She has no way to make money, no way to get food, no way to have any kind of social standing. So she has the incredible losses of losing a husband and both of her sons. But then she has this reality of an uncertain future. By now, when her sons have died, Naomi is old, and and she has no real hope for a new marriage with new children so that she can be taken care of as she moves forward. She has no security blanket. In some ways, she's the worst kind of widow. At some point, uh, she hears that things have gotten better back home 
in Bethlehem, that the crops have returned, the famine is over. So she decides to go back home. But remember, she sees herself as empty and bitter and heartbroken. And, and we see her pain put into words as, they, as she begins this journey back home with her daughters, Ruth and Orpah. She says to them, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Go home, girls. Forget about me. Start over. Naomi is not doing this because she disdains her daughters. One, one beautiful thing the book of Ruth shows us is this incredible love and affection that she has for her daughters. What she's saying to them is, because of how much I love you, you need to go home. First, it's not safe for Moabite women in Israel. The, the threat of uh, sexual and physical violence would have been a real danger for them. Uh, being looked down upon, being um, disregarded, being marginalized was a real risk for them. And the odds of them finding new husbands were incredibly low. And again, in that society, that was the way that you protected your future. You got married and you had children. If you were a woman, that is the way that you could have a place in society and that you could be provided for, taken care of. And she's saying to them, I love you too much to watch you throw this all away. Go home. Find the security of another marriage. This here is the first instance of sacrificial love in the book of Ruth. It's Naomi saying, I'm laying down my preferences. I'm laying down any kind of community that I have left because I love you. And we see how powerful the sacrificial love is because it leads to the conversion of Ruth. We don't really know why, but the first daughter, Orpah, decides to go back home. But Ruth says something very different, and it's one of the most famous passages in the Bible. So she says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Ruth is saying, I am all in with you. So, so listen, as a Moabite, she would not have worshiped the God of Israel. She's not Jewish, but she spent at least a decade living with Naomi. She's watched what the God of Israel does to people. She's watched this family. And in this moment here, even when Naomi is Drowning in grief, she sees what God does to someone. What is it about this God that he can change a heart and allow someone to lay their life down like this for somebody else? You ever think, I wonder if Naomi was like us and had these nights where she's like, man, I've been talking to Ruth about God for five years and nothing has happened, right? Like I've been investing and I've been inviting her to church and I've been giving, like slipping Bible studies and devotionals. Like anybody struggle with that? You've been trying to be friends with somebody for years and years and years, but they haven't said the sinner's prayer. So you feel like you're failing as an evangelical, right? Or you're like, my witness has been compromised or I don't, all these weird things we say. Naomi had a faithful presence in the life of Ruth for 10 years. And in this moment, all of a sudden it clicks, and Ruth here makes a profession of faith. She calls God by his covenant name. 
the name only known by the Israelites. Like she's saying, this is my God now. It's this amazing change of heart. And again, we see sacrificial love here for Naomi or from Ruth, because as far as she's concerned, there is no hope for her for a future in Bethlehem. No one's going to marry me. We can't get jobs. There's a bunch of racists over there who are going to make life really hard for me, but I'm going all in with Naomi. The power of sacrificial love empowers Ruth to respond with sacrificial love. And when she makes this confession of faith, when, when she makes this um, commitment of loyalty to Naomi, almost immediately we see this beautiful fruit of faith come in both of them. So the end of chapter one of the book of Ruth says they go back home to Bethlehem during the barley harvest. This is an act of faith for these women because, again, they had nothing. They had no money. They had no land. As far as they knew, there were no relatives waiting for them there. But Naomi knew she would have known that harvest time would have been the best chance for their survival because the custom there was uh, the, the sides and the corners of fields wouldn't be plowed and they, would be, they wouldn't be harvested. They would be left for the vulnerable of society. Uh, so if you were homeless, if you didn't have a job, if you were on hard times, you could go get food from the corners and sides of fields and eke by a living, at least during harvest season. And, and so their plan was basically to trust the kindness of their community by sacrificing their property so that the vulnerable um, could be taken care of. We see here how sacrificial love is starting to bud with these first signs of hope. We get another sign of hope in chapter 2, which is really easy for us to miss. It says, Ruth went out to grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Uh, now, it's interesting. I, I don't know if this speaks to like the blinding power of grief where life can get so hard and so tragic that your judgment gets clouded, but somehow Naomi has forgotten that her, her husband had a relative living back in Bethlehem. Um, and, and what's going on here that's so easy for us to miss? This is like the scene if you go to a romantic comedy and you're not really sure what's going on, but like in the first 10 minutes, a guy bumps into a girl and spills his coffee on her in the coffee shop and you're like, I know what's going on here. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so <laughs> Ruth, who's desperate and poor and alone and they have no hope for a future, just so happens to end up in the field where Boaz is. For the people reading this in the day, they'd have been like, ooh, this is a love story. Like, it's about to go down here. And, and then uh, when it says that he's a distant relative, this would have been trumpets blaring, saying like, okay, redemption is going to happen here. There's some hope coming here. So when, again, when Naomi left, she would have had to sell their home, their land, and, and, and this would have been like a cutoff of their future. Like the family has no chance of surviving after the husband dies, the boys die, and they have no land. They have no place to go back to. Their custom, though, was if you had to sell your land under duress, whoever owned that would have to sell it back to a relative if they wanted it, okay? So if your home got foreclosed on, 
and you got yourself back on your feet, whoever owned it would have to sell it back to you then. But if you have no relatives, there's no hope to get this back. But there's a relative left now. And it just so happens that Ruth is in his field. This sparks a kind of winding road of romance that we don't really have time to hit it all. You can go read it. It's in every one of your Bibles. Um, But there's one scene in particular that shows the women's hope-fueled faith. Uh, And it's Naomi's idea, and Ruth executes it. And so Naomi and Ruth have talked about what they're going to do already, and here's what Ruth goes and does. What happened? What I do? Here we go. Nope. Still figuring this out, y'all. After Boaz had finished eating, and by the way, Boaz means like strong. So like Boaz is a man's man, right? Like he's, I don't know what it is in Louisville, right? Like we have beards and flannel, okay? So he chops his own trees and like he's, he's wealthy, he's well thought of, like he's a dude as opposed to nausea and influenza earlier. Now we get Boaz, like it just sounds tough, Boaz. Uh, so Boaz has been working in the fields, right? And then he's gonna go ha- home and have a good time. Uh, He'd finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits. That's the Bible saying he felt good, right? Like, because he felt good, okay? Uh, go, you know what I'm saying. He lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. He had such a good time, he went to sleep in his barn. <laughs> Don't make me say it. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and, and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Uh, Your Bible might say kinsman redeemer, which is almost like an office in the Old Testament. It's almost like a priest. You know, it's like someone who can rescue and redeem your family. Um, And so now, Real quick, for the single people in here, well, really for all of us, one of the things I try to do is help you see that the Bible is not always this moral rule book for the things you're supposed to do. And a lot of us will read the Bible and look for these pragmatic, practical lessons of what to do and what not to do. There's lots of places where the Bible does that, but if that's the only way you read the Bible, you'll do very strange things. Uh, (laughs) If you're a girl, there's a little, like, maybe this is saying, like, ladies, take initiative. If that, if that guy just keeps texting you, get in his face and say, get off your phone and call me. Ask me out, you wuss, right? Like, it's okay if you're a lady, you can put some energy in there, right? Like, you can put in some initiative. But if you're a boy and you try to take a lesson here, like, I'm just saying it's, it's very strange, okay? What is the lesson here for boys to follow with Ruth? Like, what Ruth does here is breaking and entering. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're a boy... Don't break into the girl's house you're interested and like scooch some of her covers off. You hear me, okay? You do weird things with the Bible if you turn it into this moralistic rule book. So, yeah. We know know for sure that this was a big risk for Ruth. And I'll explain why that is in a second. Uh, Part of what makes this so strange is that uh, uncovering feet in, in the Old Testament is a euphemism. It's a sexual euphemism. So, like if you read about angels covering their feet, and you're like, boy, that's weird. It's because they're not covering their feet. You know, it's a, it's a euphemism. And if you don't know what a euphemism is, ask your neighbor, okay? Uh, so this is for sure risky, and it might be risque. You know what I'm saying? We don't really know what Ruth is doing here. We get no indication that anything sexual happened, 
but it strongly suggests that there was a sexual component in the sense of like maybe appeal or it, you read it and you're like, what's going on here? And uh, understandably, Boaz wakes up confused and a little stunned. So there's a woman who's come to my house and she's taken part of my covers off. But then Ruth does something that is even more scandalous. When, when she says, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer, this is Ruth proposing to Boaz. Um, she's, she's not just saying, marry me either. She's saying, you could marry me, and because you're a relative of my father-in-law, you could buy back all of our family land so we could have a place again. So <laughs> I don't know what your engagement story is like, but... <laughs> The lady comes to somebody that she doesn't even really know. We know that Boaz is familiar with her. He's seen her character and the way she works in the field. And, and Ruth says, one, I want you to marry me. Two, I want you to buy back all of the property that we lost so that our family can have a future. And maybe the most stunning thing of all is Boaz does it. He knew enough about Ruth. Uh, Boaz, by the way, is uh, the son of Rahab if you remember talking about her last week. So, Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a son named Obed, which maybe you're not all that familiar with Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. And maybe like, Jesse, root of Jesse, I've heard of Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. And if you trickle down that far enough, had a son, had a son, had a son, had a son, you get to the birth of this man named Jesus. So, listen, uh, there's an interracial, dangerous, scandalous marriage, and it leads to the birth of Jesus. Uh, Jesus could have chosen any family on earth, and he looks at this family and says, oh, I see the famine, I see the loss, I see the weird racial issues going on, I see kind of the breaking of cultural norms in Ruth, and you know what, that's exactly the family I want to be a part of. So what does this tell us about God's plan for Christmas, for our redemption, for how he will recreate us through love? So one, real quick, though we should talk more about it. Uh, Christmas announces the destruction of prejudice. So let me recap our series for you real quick. Uh, Jesus' family tree is filled with culturally problematic situations. Cultural is a really important word for you to hear. So first, by choosing a family with incest, that's Tamar. Jesus is redeeming our broken and traumatic family stories. He's he's redeeming uh, the power of historical prejudice. And, And here's what I mean. Your prejudice towards your history the thought that what's behind you is too messed up, it's too ugly, it's too broken for you to have a meaningful part in the kingdom of God or for God to be able to do anything with you. Christmas says, look at who is in my family. You think your story is too messed up? You think what's behind you is too messed up? You think that addiction is too bad or what mom and dad did for you or that dad left or that mom was this? And he's saying, look at at what I've done here with Tamar and, and how I've redeemed her story. Jesus redeems broken, traumatic family stories, and he destroys our prejudice against our own histories. By choosing a family with prostitutes, in in Rahab, 
Jesus destroys our moral prejudices. And, and that's this, the prejudice that's birthed from, you notice how every person, every culture has someone that is those people? And, and they're the people that we say, man, I can't stand those people. I can't stand those people that voted for Trump. I can't stand those people that voted for Hillary. Those are the ones we hear most often around here. Um, I can't stand those people that live up on the knobs. You know how embarrassed I am that I hear that about once a week? I can't stand those people that live down on the hill, down under the hill. But by choosing someone with such ugly moral failure in their life, God is showing us that no one is beyond his grace and Jesus is willing to redeem everyone's stories, even the people that do the moral things that you think that they shouldn't do. By choosing a family with risk takers and rule breakers here in Ruth, Jesus destroys our cultural prejudices. And, and these are, you know, the, the notion that other races are superior. Which, my goodness, how much longer is it going to take for us to really believe that as a church? How much longer is it going to take us to believe that as a culture? And to, I mean, how, how much more clearly does God need to show us? He has no problem with an interracial marriage. When Jesus comes back, and has, I love that Jesus' big plan when he returns is to throw a big feast for everybody. And he says, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, like they're all going to be there. So if you have a problem with someone who doesn't speak English, if you have a problem with someone who doesn't look like you or who isn't white, if you have a problem with someone who immigrated to this country, you will have a real problem in heaven. Okay? You will have a real problem in heaven. Ruth is a dark-skinned Moabite from the wrong side of town, cut off from her family, poor, with nothing material to offer. She proposes to Boaz, a wealthy, well-regarded Jewish man. All of these are cultural problems in their day. But Jesus chooses this for his family to show us that there is no prejudice in the kingdom of God. Period. Christmas announces the destruction of prejudice. Second, Christmas announces the healing of our shame. Once Ruth makes her confession of faith, you know what we no longer hear about her? We no longer hear Ruth, parentheses, the Moabite, which we get in the front end of it. After she comes to faith in God, she's never called the Moabite anymore. Uh, what about Naomi? She comes back home to town and says, y'all call me bitter. You know what no one ever calls her? Bitter. No one ever calls her by these names. Christmas is the announcement that the names of your shame no longer apply to you. Imagine what it would have felt like to be Ruth, knowing you were an outsider. What kind of names do you think people had called her during her life? What do you think Naomi thought people were going to call her when she comes back home? What if people called you? What are the names of your shame that people have given you? The things that you try to hide, maybe things you had no control over, that people have thrown that in your face year after year after year. Think of the reasons you have to feel unworthy or unlovable. Christmas tells you that God has a different name for you. And simply put, it's beloved son, beloved daughter. Christmas announces the healing of your shame. And finally, Christmas displays the power of sacrificial love. This is the central theme in the book of Ruth, in my opinion. Naomi sacrifices her desires for the sake of Ruth. Ruth sacrifices the hope of her future for Naomi. Boaz sacrifices his cultural standards for them both. If you read this book, you'll see that Boaz tells the young men working in the fields, don't touch Ruth. Leave her alone. 
Don't treat her poorly. And maybe we look back at that and like, oh man, remember back in culture when men used their power to take advantage of women? Haven't we moved so far beyond that? I don't know how you feel about every couple of days someone else getting fired or getting put under investigation uh, for sexual harassment claims, but I say, bring it on, right? Like, it's time, y'all. How many, how many thousands of years have, have women had to live in fear of the men who had power over them? A Moabite woman would not have been safe in Bethlehem, period. She would not have been safe there. And Boaz, a wealthy landowner, well thought of in the community, what does he do? He doesn't say, hey, meet me in a hotel room, or I'll, I'll give you a place on this field if you... What does he do? He leverages his power to protect perhaps the most vulnerable person in town. He, he uses his power, his wealth, his position, not to see a woman as an object. He, he doesn't use it as justification for abuse and oppression, but he uses his power to protect the most vulnerable in his society. And every step of the way in the story, sacrificial love transforms the object of its love. Whenever you see these people laying down their rights, breaking from cultural norms, sacrificial love, it transforms the beloved. And each of these figures give us a glimpse into the sacrificial love of Jesus. Like Naomi, Jesus lays down his desires for you. Have you ever thought about how bizarre it was for the king of heaven to be born by a teenage girl into a stall? How mad do you get when you travel and there's no hotel room and you got to stay at like the Ramada Inn or something like that? But the God of the universe says, I will go to the most humble, the most lowly, the coldest, loneliest place I can. He sacrifices desires for you like Naomi. Ruth sacrifices his future for you. Like Ruth, he sacrifices his future for you. He willingly lays his life down at the cross to cleanse you, to heal you, to adopt you. We see the tension in Jesus when he says, if there's any other way for me to do this, God, let me do it. But I'll lay down my future for you, just like Ruth does for Naomi. And like Boaz, Jesus uses his power to love and protect the vulnerable and the helpless. This is the wonder of the gospel, that the king of the universe lays his life down for the sake of those he loves. So the invitation here is simply to receive a new name, receive his love for you, a new hope, a new future. That is what Christmas offers you. It's the announcement that it can be yours. And what about the transition to communion? We're all on train wreck, Kids Sunday. It's way back there. I can't get there. So we'll just pretend. Y'all have seen it before. Uh, isn't that amazing Like God uses awkward services like that too? And maybe, I don't know what he's doing here, but uh, what a beautiful message that he has for us, that the most powerful one, um, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, lays it down for you. And we remember this um, by remembering the words of Jesus, where on the night he was betrayed, and his disciples had no idea what was going on. And maybe you're here feeling conflicted or confused. Maybe it's Christmas, and you found your way back to church for the first time in a long time. You probably felt a lot like the disciples did on this night, where, where Jesus took a loaf of bread for them, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. It would have made very little sense what he was talking about. He says, eat this and remember what I've done for you. 
After the meal, he took a cup of wine and said, this is what seals your relationship with God. It's my blood shed for you. And it, it didn't make any sense until a few days later, a few hours later, they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, his body beaten beyond recognition, his blood poured out on the ground and said, this is how we will be made right with God. This is how our sins will be wiped away. This is how um, we will receive a new name and a new hope for our future. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I know this is like kind of a complicated sermon going through a whole book of the Bible. Like the question you need to answer is, what must God think of you that Jesus would do this for you? How will you respond to the sacrificial love of Jesus? And there's a few hundred people in our church that would testify to the power of that love to transform you. Um, Look at the Browns who have uprooted their life to go to a hard place, to leave close friends and family, comfortable spot, to go do something new because the sacrificial power of Jesus has changed them and it can change you too. If you're a Christian, uh, take a second and I encourage you uh, to just reflect again on what are the names of your shame? What are the reasons you have to believe that there's no place for you in the story of God? And then come forward and receive your new name again. Remember how you know you're loved and you've been set free by the gospel. Our tradition at Sojourn is to rip off a piece of bread and dip it in wine or juice. The wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and you can use whatever you'd like. There'll be stations in the back, up front, and a gluten-free to my left, your right. I'll pray for us and then Christians, you can come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.